Welcome to this week's episode of Fortitude and Truth. As always, my name is Nate, and I'm here with my brother in Christ and my brother-in-law, Andrew. And today we've got just a killer show for you. Today we're doing our first section we'd like to call Academia Today. And we're going to be reviewing in kind of a longer format, about our normal hour length, uh, misreading scripture with Western eyes. So we'll still give you our verse of the week, and then I'll give you kind of a breakdown of the book itself and some of the authors. And then we'll get into some of the things they discuss and how this tool can really be helpful for you when it comes to understanding scripture. The verse this week is 2 Timothy 2.15, and it reads, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And I kind of want to add verse 16 in here too. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead into more and more ungodliness. And I think that's super important as we talk about the show as fortitude and truth and the things we discuss here is that's it, right? We do our best, uh, Andrew and I, to present ourselves to God as approved workmen, rightly dividing and rightly handling the word of truth. Um, But we pass along the information that we come across to you because we want you to be workmen to present yourselves, workmen, workwomen, work people to present yourselves to God as one approved um, with no need to be ashamed. And again, Scripture is the authority. Scripture is sufficient. But in the common grace of God, he's given us our forefathers and those who have gone before, different gifts who are able to use the Spirit to glean things from Scripture and understand Scripture and pass these things along to us. And again, they all stand under the authority of Scripture, not over it and not side by side with it. They stand under the authority of Scripture, and so they can help. But ultimately, if anything contradicts Scripture or disagrees with Scripture, that Scripture is the authority. I say that a lot, and you're going to hear that a lot, that it Scripture, 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 probably till you're sick in the face. But that's okay, because that's the answer. Scripture is the answer. If you don't know, go to Scripture. If it doesn't say, then pray about it, right? Because God is... God has a way of revealing things through Scripture, through your study of Scripture, that you may not even realize, right? And it's, that's the wonderful journey of uh, being a Christian, is you continue to grow not only in knowledge, but understanding and wisdom, and, and to grow more into the heart of Christ. And I think that's wonderful. So in, on that note, just a quick rundown. So this, this text, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, the biggest thing that really we came to to get to on this text is we often don't realize that we have bias. And in, in the case of this book, it really likes to deal with cultural bias, right? So it says with Western eyes and here in America and, and in the Western, in Western civilization, in Western countries, we have a specific bias. And often people don't even realize we have this bias. And so we're going to go through some the breakdown of this book is going to give us some examples of those bias and how we can better understand the text of Scripture based on these bias. And again, this, this resource is not infallible. It does come with some issues, and we might point some of those out today. Um, but it's in, it's in good faith, right, to help you grow, right? And I think the authors of this text have done really, as a whole, a great job in providing a resource that is beneficial 
to the Christian community. It's something I read in seminary. Andrew has already read it, I believe. My father passed along this resource as something that is really something to kind of just continue to provide depth to your study. So if you're interested in it, again, it's titled Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blindness to Better Understand the Bible. And so the authors of this text are... Hold on. J.W. Oh, no, no. They're not that. Yep, it helped if I didn't lose my page when we're doing a uh, podcast, huh? <laughs> e. Randolph Richards and Brandon J. O'Brien. And so these two men, I'm going to give you a short, I'm going to give you your bio right off their websites because I don't want to plagiarize and guess on who these people are. So let them speak for themselves. Brandon J. O'Brien earned his PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and is the Director of Content Development and Distribution for Redeemer City to City, which is an organization that supports church planting in global cities. Brandon is the author of several books, the most recent of which is Not From Around Here, what unites us, what divides us, and how we can move forward, which sounds like a good read. And he currently lives with his wife, Amy, and two children in Phoenix, Arizona. The other author is E. Randolph Richards, who earned his PhD from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and is currently provost and professor of biblical studies in the School of Ministry at Palm Beach Atlantic University. He's a popular speaker and has authored and co-authored dozens of books and articles, including Paul Behaving Badly, The Little Book for New Bible Scholars, Rediscovering Jesus, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Rediscovering Paul, The Story of Israel, and Paul and First Century Letter Writing. Early on in his ministry, him and his wife Stacia were appointed as missionaries into East Indonesia, where he taught for eight years at an Indonesian seminary. Mission remains on their hearts. And Randy currently leads mission trips and conducts missionary training workshops regularly uh, to the Holy Land, Turkey, Greece, and Italy. He has served as interim pastor of numerous churches and is currently a teaching pastor in Palm Beach, Florida with his wife. And I think that kind of gives him, I know the, both these men have their PhDs, which I think is um, an accomplishment in, of itself. And I think that study can lead to some really interesting insights. But um, Dr. Richards... I don't know if he even call himself Dr. Richards, but Dr. Richards having that um, life as a missionary in East Indonesia really kind of gives him firsthand experience. And he writes about that a little bit in the text of of different culture where it's completely different from Western. It's very, very Eastern. And it's there's really kind of a dichotomy there that we'll see as we go through today's show. But it's really just exciting to pass along these resources for you guys. I think as we get into some of these academia today's and we'll get into quite a few of them hopefully where we can just give you things that can further your study and again furthering your study it's not just about knowledge right it's about application it's about living out this knowledge that you've gained through scripture and becoming more like christ so that being said we're going to start so this book breaks down into three major sections and that's kind of how we're going to break down our show today is it's above the surface just below the surface and deep below the surface and then we'll close with our own application um, that actually comes kind of from the text. It's just three easy steps for helping to remove cultural blinders. And uh, disclaimer, I don't know that we can always remove cultural blinders. And I don't know if it's always helpful to even remove them. But even if we're just aware 
of our bias that can help in furthering our understanding that we realize, Hey, I'm blind in this area and I need help. Right. We have the same problem with our sin, right? Our sin blinds us and we realize that we need help. And the one who reveals our sins obviously is the spirit, but we also have other brothers and sisters who can sometimes come alongside us and either reveal those sins or support us in combating those sins. So in any case, uh, my brother Andrew here is going to start, uh, kick us off with some discussion about above the surface. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Um, just, I, I think you get it, hit it out of the park there before we even start about a, it, it's important for us to be at least understanding, right, of, of, of our different culture, cultural differences and how our cultural views in Moors, which we'll cover what that means in about a second here, um, how they affect us. And I would agree wholeheartedly that at times it, it, it's probably not valuable to remove it always, but it's immensely valuable to be aware of it, right? Because um, even how God used these authors, uh, he used to pen his word, they communicated within the context of culture as well. And they, there were certain assumptions that they had that their original audiences would have perfectly understood. Um, and that being aware of that and then knowing that as we approach the text of Scripture can help us. Again, not to overweight it. It's not meant to be overweighted, but it's just meant to be a uh, something we're aware of. Um, I think it's just immensely helpful. And that's something, again, that uh, Nate did a great job outlining for us, brother. I appreciate that. Um, I think that, yes, this book largely succeeds in its goal. And I'll, I'll even read from the introduction, you know, a brief excerpt. Our goal in this book is not, first and foremost, to argue which interpretation of a biblical story like this one is correct. Our goal is to raise this question. If our cultural context and assumptions can cause us to overlook a famine, what else do we fail to notice? That's more in the context of a specific biblical account, that, or I'm sorry, a story that they outline in their introduction. But nonetheless, the goal of it, again, is to bring to light what cultural assumptions are we bringing to the text. And I think that's very valuable. And I think, again, they, they, they succeed in that. Now, when we step into the part one or sec, um, section one, Sorry, section one, above the surface. Now, again, this covers that why it's labeled as above the surface, or surface rather, is because these are the things that we notice immediately when we go to a different country, right? If we were to enter into even, for example, Germany, which I would argue is a Western country, um, we would notice these things immediately, the language, the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the way, the things, certain things they value heavily immediately, right? Not the nuances, but the bigger, broad strokes, um, how they might treat different ethnicities, what their views are of ethnicities, um, all of these, even in going, you don't have to go all the way to Germany, you can go to Canada and notice that too. Um, especially if you go to Quebec, you'll notice that a lot. Um, that's stuff that, again, these are the things that pop off at you immediately. So in chapter one, they, def- we're, he, def- they, or he, excuse me, I don't know why I, I kind of brain farted there. They define Moors, what, what cultural Moors are. In chapter two, um, it, it, it's focused on ethnicity and race. Like what assumptions are brought, whether it be to the text or whatever we have culturally, they unpack that. Um, and then chapter three is probably my, one of my favorites, language. Um, I don't think it's any secret at this point how much I find language fascinating. Um, even if I butcher words like I did last Sunday, um, how much I deeply appreciate language. For those of you, that's an inside joke. I know I butchered the Greek in my uh, sermon, but you know, 
you fall seven times and rise again, right? Uh, get back on the horse and keep trying. Amen. <laughs> but nonetheless, I, all honesty, I, I, what they, how they, their, their entire chapter focused on language, I really enjoyed. Um, but anyway, let's dive right into it. So in chapter one, they begin by defining what, they, what a cultural moor is. Um, and, and how they are developed, right? So first and foremost, it's a social, what we can understand more, it's a social convention that dictates which behaviors are considered inappropriate or appropriate rather and or inappropriate. So in other words, what we as a culture would determine as right and wrong behavior. That, that's what a, a more is. Um, <clears throat> and they, they break down this view in chapter one, the following two ways. First, they start of the conflict of the Christian more and the Western more at large, or specifically in the United States. So a, lo- a lot of assumption is placed on, and they, they, it's not really assumption, they make it clear that they're applying Western to be more specifically American, more specifically American Christians, and then the, the context of the American culture at large and how it impacts what we view as our Christian mores. Um, and, I, and, and that in reality, we, we bring a lot of assumptions um, in, that, in the light of that. And they really highlight further when it comes to mores in three subtopics, one being sex, one being money, and the last one being food. Um, now, and there's key passages that we highlight here. Now, there's a couple. i flip through my pages here. If you hear that wrinkling, that's me flipping through the book. I have flagged many points. Yeah, you don't hear me flagging. <laughs> Digital books are better. But yeah. at the same time, we think this bias as far as mores go and – I don't know if Andrew's getting here or not, but the real thing is this idea that um, even as Western Christians, we get our standards from the Bible, or we should get our standards from the Bible, but the problem is that because we have these American standards, we kind of emphasize the things that the Bible is clear on, and we kind of shy away from the things that Bible is not. And so it's it's kind of weird to see this dichotomy that even the difference between like American Christians and Americans is really just like that dichotomy in of itself, but then also like American Christians versus like Eastern Christians. Oh yeah. And the way they see scripture just from this, like the standpoint of like, uh, like principles and yeah. kind of like rules. No, that that's a, I, I am getting to that point for absolutely. No, no, that's good. No, I'm glad that we you interjected because we, before we even get into the three subtopics, I don't know why I actually, for those of you listening, I actually put up the number three. No one's watching. I don't know why I did that, but nonetheless, it's more of my teacher in me, but nonetheless, um, before they even get into the subtopics, they use the example of Sodom and Gomorrah in uh, Genesis 19 verses one through nine. Now I'm going to read again the, an excerpt from here because I think they do a good job about lining this, this point. So let's see here. Where do I want to pick up? Indeed, they are not explicit. They're not made explicit. Our cultural mores can lead us to misread the Bible. Now, here we go. In the story about Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, it seems very clear to us that the sin of the Sodomites was sodomy. We even named that sin after them. To Indonesian Christians, the sin of the Sodomites is equally clear, inhospitality. They appeal to this verse for support. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. That's found in Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Both groups agree that the folks of Sodom were sinful. But to which, of which sin were they guilty? In the pages that follow, we consider three issues, sex, food, and money, as I outlined in the past. 
which are surrounded by cultural mores that can influence how we read scripture. Now, I thought that was a phenomenal example of what they kind of get to throughout each of these sections. Um, And I would argue here personally that it's both. (laughs) That the sin of Sodom was both of these things and and others. But (laughs) there's, so in other words, it's important to highlight here that it's not one or the other. It's not like you have to pick you know, there's a, there was an abundance of sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. You didn't have to pick just one of them. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are, but. <laughs> I, I agree. I might disagree a little bit here because um, I think the Bible has a special place for uh, sexual sin. But Oh, I don't disagree but with that. But that, that, again, that might be a little bit Western bias. I'm not 100% sure on that. But even still, yeah, the, the sin, like, inhospitality is definitely looked down upon in the Bible. It's definitely something that's called yeah. sin. And I think we miss that because we're so focused on on the sex issue here in Sodom and Gomorrah that we miss everything else. And yeah. good or bad, that's that's that comes from bias, right? We see the sex, the sex. In America, sex sells, right? So, And that's unfortunate, but that's our sin. And because, we, especially in America, we see that. And that's the sin we see. And again, that's again maybe it is a cultural bias that I think that that's there. But it it's eye opening to see that another culture would view it differently. Yeah. That they would see that other like the sin of inhospi- inhospitality uh, as as something that really stands out there because we we wouldn't see that. I, I openly would admit that I did not see that the first time I read that text. Yeah, no, and I would agree. And I also agree with your comment concerning sexual sin. The Bible is clear in other places that God, when you sin against the body, that, that there is a certain level of implication that that is, I wouldn't say worse, but definitely the, the level of justice that in our human understanding would be higher. I would say worse, but that's yeah. okay. No, I, well, I, I want to try to be clear. Like, what I mean worse is God, God definitely looks on it worse, and he definitely the judgment, the level of judgment would be higher. And in our human understanding, the way we view judgment, it would be much much more severe. Um, but that, 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 again, my point in that was that you we don't have to be exclusive, right? Like how Nate pointed out, like I, when I first read the text, I, I immediately noticed the, the sexual sin of Sodom. And kind of glossed over this other one, which is equally true. This was another sin of theirs. Um, and so that's what I mean by both and. It's important that we understand that sin is sin, yes, but when we're assessing something like that, we should see the total picture and not allow, try to do our best to strip away, or not even strip away, but just be aware of the cultural blinders that we have that might for, cause us to emphasize certain portions. Um, now, within the, the portion, the subtitle of, of sex, um, he actually got into this interesting um, account of, um, let's see how he addressed this, here, how, how it's titled. Not the account of Thomas, but the Acts of Thomas, which is an apocryphal book, or apocryphal, apocryphal book. Um, which is not, if for those of you who are unclear on what apocryphal is, it is not in the canon of Scripture. Um, it's extra Despite biblical. what our Catholic brothers believe, we believe it is extra biblical. And while there are things, I think, in the apocrypha that can be helpful yeah. just like any of these texts we're kind of giving you as, as guides um if they align with scripture they can be helpful but they, again the apocrypha uh we believe is stands under the authority of scripture and is not inspired scripture uh that's a great caveat as i that's how i would have unpacked it as well it's um yeah again it can serve to add int- more historical context and help us to de- better understand the culture and the and the overall context of the society at the time. 
and it can add, help us add a deeper light to things to help understand, help, help guide us into more understanding, but it does not carry the authority and weight of scripture. Um, but when, with the Acts of Thomas, it outlines the, the, the Apostle Thomas um, and his influence on the Hindus, actually, when he was a missionary there, um, actually teaching against marriage, which, again, I strongly disagree with, respectfully. But his point was he came in and saw the magnitude of sexual sin that was going on um, in that area and highlighted that heavily to the point to where they, he discouraged them from marriage, discouraged them from all that to be de- dedicated solely to Christ. <clears throat> so that, that, that was rather interesting because and, and, obviously in our c- cultural context, we highly emphasize marriage and the value of it. And they, and they get into it in the text here in the book about how, and I, I actually agree with them. I, I disagree with their emphasis uh, personally, but that's not my that that's not the point of this podcast right now. Um, but I, their emphasis on um, the application of the text of First Corinthians seven, I, I respectfully disagree with it. I think they over I think they stretch it to mean something that Paul wasn't intending. But nonetheless, I think they hit on a very important point that in the church in the West we don't do a good job of ministering to adult singles. Um, that our focus is only on families. Not that families aren't important. They are. But I would argue they need to be on equal playing fields. And I think the book does a good job of bringing attention to that in chapter one here, in, in this section. I also think what Thomas did is a little bit Western, despite yeah. the fact that he was not, not yeah. Western in nature, that we like to just put rules on things. Yeah. Uh, one of the things this, this chapter in this book will do, will there's these dichotomies of... Um, like Americans especially, we like to see things as either or, right? It's either this or it's that. It's black or white. There is no gray. And Eastern is very much a lot of gray area, very much sliding scale. Um, yeah. And the more I study Scripture, the more I realize that that's really how Scripture works. Um, but even in this case, like we just kind of, oh, it's either marriage or it's not marriage. So we, have see, we see sexual sin. We just have to just, hey, abstinence, abstinence, abstinence. But is that the, the end-all, be-all? Our rules, the end-all, be-all, is the law, end-all, be-all. And um, I don't know that that's always healthy. Um, the law has its place. Rules yeah. have their place. Uh, but ultimately, if there's not changes in heart, that you could, you know, you can frown upon marriage, you can teach against marriage. But at the end of the day, if people don't believe it and their hearts don't change, they're still going to have sin of some nature, whether it's sexual or not. Yeah, and, and might I say, too, on that note even with marriage, that the Scripture is clear that marriage has to be held in honor. Um, because of what it signifies and because it is an institution of the Lord. So that's what I mean by the tension, um, because in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's addressing specific sins in the Corinth church. Um, and I, I do believe in context here in the chapter, they, in, my, they, in my view, they overextend it, and they overemphasize certain things that Paul was teaching and speaking to and saying, see, this is him teaching against marriage, period. No, that's not true at all. Um, and again, I, I, that for me is my summary takeaway in that section, so I'm not ascribing that to them. Uh, but again, I think they hit it out of the park when they talk about, and they go back to the focus of the church in the West and how largely, and specifically in America, we, that is true of us. That is a true criticism, a genuine point that we need to assess and get better at is our ministering to single adults and not making them feel like they're somehow lacking or there's something wrong with them that they're not married right away. 
Um, I, I do agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, and I would argue with, with Nate's point about what, Tom, what, what Thomas was doing was rather Western. And, and to his point, because he outlines a very phenomenal point, and there's a whole chapter that I'll cover on uh, chapter seven that breaks down this idea of how rules impact the way we view things. So as we could, so continuing, um, so the proof texts, again, for the, the in the subsection of, of sex is the key passage he looks at is first, first Corinthians seven. Then we roll into money and how we in America in our American um, bias, if you will, culturally is we like to, emphasize, which I think correctly, um, largely, but again, that could, again, largely be a cultural bias, but that there's a distinction between working with toward money or being blessed with money and having it, simply having an abundance of money, not being a sin, because that's more amoral. Um, however, in some cultures, that's viewed as hoarding and there's a finite amount. Because in America, we, oh, we can always make more money. We can always get more things. Not every culture views wealth that way. Some cultures view it as very finite. So when some people have extra, it's looked at as immoral and inherently sinful because you're taking from others that don't have it because it's a finite amount. Um, and the proof text they kind of really cover is in 1 Corinthians 11 and that. And lastly, the subsection of food. Um, and they do, a, I, I think in that section, they do a decent job, a very good job of highlighting in even the Acts church, when, when now you have all these Gentile believers coming in and the Jewish cultural bias of, you know, specifically like pork and you know, uncured meats um, <clears throat> and how that would have been a stumbling block for them. Uh, and they do a good job looking specifically at like Acts 10, um, assessing now, recognizing that Gentiles are definitely grafted in um, and how this works and do they get circumcised? Do they not get circumcised? Do they eat? What food laws do we apply to them? All, uh, these questions are outlined. They do a pretty good job of highlighting that through the lens of cultural bias. Um, chapter two is shorter. It looks at race and ethnicity in, in light of the approach and interpretation of scripture. Um, it looks at Moses' wife and Aaron's commentary of it in Numbers 12, um, which is as an American... You know, the cultural bias is, oh, well, you know, we look at it as since his wife presumably, I, again, I think they make an assumption here, but nonetheless, presumably would have been of bl uh, black skin tone or dark skin complexion, um, they, that automatically with an American bias, we look at it as if he, Aaron was being racist um, or somehow looking at Moses as if he married under his class. When they, and they do a good job of highlighting that in that culture, actually, they were probably talking to the fact that, hey, Moses, you're married above yourself. You're very presumptuous because of who you married, um, which is a obviously the exact opposite of how someone in America might, might read that. Again, I say might because I think it's important not to come to a whole group of people as big as America and paint with such a broad brush. Uh, they, they don't really do that, but I just that's my word of caution. Um, and then as we roll in, it looks in and it extends this idea to the church, specifically in Acts 6. Um, this is again, I'm sorry, I got it confused. So the food portion is um, in chapter one under that looks at specifically the food laws and how they apply food laws. And um, Acts 6 in this section here in, in chapter two looks at how to handle, how the Jewish church handled, or, sorry, the Jew 
new Jewish converts handle the Gentiles coming in and like the whole idea of circumcision. Do we not? Do we? How do we handle all of this? And um, even Paul's, some of Paul's um, standing on it a little bit. Then we get into chapter three. Sorry, I'm picking this up a little bit. And that's language. And again, that's my favorite. <laughs> um, and I like the subheading they had, which is our language adequately describes reality. And I actually, you know, made some word for word points here. So word, the words that are chosen uh, that are created and used in syntax are a good indication of what we consider important. Right. And, and that goes for any culture, whether it be America, whether it be they use the example even of the distinction between the English in America and the English in Britain. Um, which is a, it was a very good illustration. And they obviously also talk about other cultures like Indonesia. Um, and we see, and they even highlight in Galatians 5.22, that Paul was seeking for a Greek word to describe a singular fruit of the Spirit. And ends up with five. Or I'm sorry, I could be off the top of my head. But anyway, Galatians 5.22, and it talks about how do we define, it's definitely more than five. But nonetheless. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. But nonetheless, um, in order to get that proper understanding and communicate fully what the Apostle Paul was trying to say, that's how we get our fruits of the Spirit, not single, singular fruit, which I thought was interesting. I think they did it was faithful in that. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and like, for example, in, in the West, specifically in America, we like prepositional language. Um, and to, to Nate's point earlier, we don't like ambiguity and metaphorical, uh, I would say nonsense, I almost said nonsense, I don't know why I said that. Um, we, don't like, we don't like that kind of stuff in the West. Uh, we like very straightforward, very descriptive, very, we like specificity. Um, almost in a way, we think of how the, how the world kind of views America, I would say, or some cultures. Think of how some of you view engineers, right? How specific they are, how, you know, how detail-oriented they are. Well, that's how a lot of times our language, our language is. Um, biblical writers often prefer to speak about spiritual things metaphorically. Um, and they're, and then when they close it, and I think that's a phenomenal point because there are a lot, we would call them Eastern, um, and Eastern cultures tend to be much more metaphorical, much more allegorical, um, and even communicate in that way. Yes, Nate. Oh, (laughs) I gave a funny look. Apparently you thought I was going to say something. Yeah, no, I thought, I thought there was a point of of um additional light to be shed but no i mean there is but not i don't know if it directly ties in we talk about languages about obviously we have to remember too scripture was written in greek and hebrew and aramaic and none of us well most of us don't speak those languages or read those languages uh i try i dabble and we're getting there but even still like the greek the way greek is written very often subjects prepositions connecting words are kind of implied or translated in english where they don't even exist in greek because there's no emphasis on them and we overemphasize words that may not even be there um just to for the continuity of an english language or there's never then there's also not a lot of perfect syntax right there's four greek words for love and they, there's one English word. They they actually draw that out. Sorry, I'm going to cut you off. In in in, in the uh, chapter three, they outline that example, that very one. How in in Greek, there's four words for love, and in English, we have one, <laughs> which is fascinating. Um, especially, and maybe that's why we as Westerners get love so confused. Maybe not, but um, uh, spoilers too. I also have all four of those words tattooed somewhere on my body. Um, TMI. I'm, no, I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> they're, on, they're on my arm. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. And if you want to know where we stand on tattoos, there's your answer. Yeah. I don't believe there's any biblical prohibitions to those, and I think that my tattoos can serve as a witness as well. Um, but I'll, that's all we're going to say about tattoos. Um, and so, yeah, that's all I really have to say about language. I yeah. think just it's always important to remember that who was writing in context. And we talked about it a little bit last week, and we'll probably talk about it more, is when we interpret scripture, our hermeneutic, is we have to stay in context. And part of that context is when was this written? Who was this written to? And very often, uh, the people it was written to are very different from us. They may be theologically similar when we talk about like the New Testament. They may have the same theological or similar theological viewpoints as us about Christ and about our standing with Christ. But at the same time, they lived in the first century and we live in the 21st century. If we go back even further into the Old Testament, we cross covenants, right? We go in the Old Covenant. There's a whole different set of rules, basically, um, in, uh, in, in some ways. That's, that's a, a topic for another day. But the same thing. We cross covenants, and we get even further back in time, further away from our culture and our time where we even understand these things. And so we just have to be diligent about understanding that because Scripture means what it means. Right, it was written to a specific audience for a specific purpose, and we're just reading. Some, basically, somebody said it like this: we're, "We're kind of reading somebody else's mail." Right, you're you're reading Paul's letters. You're reading somebody else's mail, and if that's the case, you have to know who wrote it and who they're writing to, and the situation surrounding why they're written. Otherwise, you could make the all the words even in the like the letter. If you just took the letter and didn't know anything about it, you could still make it say whatever you wanted to say, even if you read it in order. Right, you could throw implications there, allegory there, and just kind of a whole bucket of nonsense. And so, just just that constant reminder of always doing your due diligence. Somebody, somebody wise once told me that every text that doesn't have a context is a pretext. That's a good way to put it. Well, and that ties in well to their suggestion when they kind of close out chapter three is when studying scripture, you utilize multiple translations. Um, which I think is important. And they highlight briefly, they don't go in depth as to like ESV, NASB, KJV rather. Um, they, they don't go in depth as to like all of those, but they cover how some translations are like word for word and seek diligently to understand what each word meant in context and, and build out proper context from there. And while other translations go more of a thought for thought to help with the American translation. <clears throat> um, and they say, and I actually kind of agree with this, this is not the first time probably most of us have heard this, but when studying, if you haven't heard this, this is a phenomenal tried and true point. Um, use multiple translations. Absolutely. I, we can, we can have a discussion on translations later. We could. But <laughs> we probably, we probably will because I have, we probably have some recommendations there as far as some good ones, some not so good yeah. ones. And again, it's, there's a spectrum and for the most part, things are pretty good. There a pretty. There's a few that have some red flags that we would caution you against, and we'll get there. Um, but I want to. I want to read this, and this is kind of our transition into getting just below the surface. So, the authors provide a version of Psalm 23, and what it is is it's called a literal back translation. So what it was, it was translated from Greek to this language of the Camus tribe. I'm probably butchering that Camus tribe of Laos. And then it's translated from their language back into English, right? So it's not translated 
it's right. So basically what their words mean, if we translate it back in English, it's like if you use Google Translate like twice, right? You translate something and then translate it back into English and you get these crazy things. They've made like TikToks and, and YouTube videos about these and they're fascinating. Um, but this would be kind of like that. So, and we're all familiar with Psalm 23. If you're not, pause it, go get your Bible, go open it up and kind of follow along and just see how, how different these languages really are on, on what they emphasize. And it's not just language. We'll get into some things it has about culture too, but from the beginning says the great boss is the one who takes care of my sheep. I don't want to own anything. The great boss wants me to lie down in the field. He wants me to go to the lake. He makes my good spirit come back. Even though I walk through something, the missionary calls the Valley of the shadow of death. I do not care. You are with me. You use a stick and a club to make me comfortable. You manufacture a piece of furniture right in front of my eyes while my enemies watch. You pour car grease on my head. My cup has too much water in it and therefore overflows. Goodness and kindness will walk single file behind me all my life. And I will live in the great hut of the great I will live in the hut of the great boss until I die and am forgotten by my tribe. And so the first thing we know is just the language. It's very um different from what we see. So we as Westerners read this as very poetic and very beautiful. We understand the Psalms that way. This is very, very literal as far as translations go, which is very just fascinating of itself. But if we look at the very last line, it says, I will live in the hut of the great boss. And we read that, right? As I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But this says the great boss until I die and am forgotten by the tribe. And so this is this idea of what, many people believe and we see a lot of is the difference between individualism and collectivism right western society is very very individualistic it's all about me and i and my choices are my own and nobody else has to be responsible for them and i'm not responsible for anybody else's choices but eastern society is very collective it's all about the family unit or the cultural unit or the neighborhood or whatever the sociological or cultural um, group has kind of defined the collective. Um, We see different things in scripture as far as that goes, but this idea that uh, until I die and am forgotten by my tribe is these people, they, we have this idea of heaven, like of being here, going there. They would see heaven as not wanting to leave their loved ones, right? They would all want to be there together. Right? It's not fair if I get to leave and go there. Or it's un- it actually could be conversely unfair that I have to leave and go there when everybody else gets to stay together. Everybody should go together. So they all get to basically dwell together unless one of them is forgotten or they're all forgotten. And then that way they're still all together. It's just interesting to find out um, some of these things. And two, um, as far as a couple of examples in Scripture we see, um, this this play out is and sometimes it's quoted directly where they'll say like as for me in my house um, but I believe it's the faith of the centurion where basically it kind of the text seems to read that because of the faith of the centurion his whole family was saved and we read that as westerners and, and would tend to assume that oh the faith of one man can save his family well no that's not really what's going on there it's really because this man as the head of his house speaks for his family. So odds are they all probably made a personal faith commitment, 
But the text, written the way it was and the culture it was, really is just he made a statement for his family that his family agrees with and goes along with. And so they were all saved, again, because of their own choices. But we read it as Westerners as, oh, one man's faith saved his whole family. And vice versa, Easterners would read that exactly probably how it was meant. I was, if I may add, that would be the assumption, I think, in that text when it's communicated, is that, that well, like you said, like we, they all, it was something kind of like how you and I would write a letter. There are certain things culturally we won't have to even address because I just know you're going to know what I'm talking about. It's kind of similar. Um, it was very known that the man of the household spoke for the whole household, not just for himself. Um, but yeah, anyway, I didn't mean to overemphasize nope. that. Point. I, I know it, it's important. Um, the one thing I thought was really cool and this has stuck with me and it's, it, I don't know that it adds anything to the meaning of the text. So you can take it for what it's worth. And again, it's, it's one of those things that it's not in the text. So it's, it's kind of implied and maybe the authors are making an assumption here, but I, I just find it interesting. We talk about like family units, um, as Westerners, you hear the story of Mary and Joseph on the donkey traveling to Bethlehem. Who's with them? I mean, most people, and myself included, until I read this book, would assume that it was Mary and Joseph. The text says Mary and Joseph. The text means Mary and Joseph. Um, based on cultural standards, that was highly unlikely uh, for a couple reasons. One, because of the family units being together and they would have traveled together. She was pregnant. Uh, there's no way they would have let her go alone. Um, even her own parents would have not let her go alone. And secondly, they had to go to the same place for the census. Right, Caesar Augustus called the census for the families, so they pretty much would have all been together anyway. Um, so again, maybe that's reading into the text a little bit too much, because again, the 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 actual answer is not there. But it's just something to think about, right? We assume because the text doesn't say that their family was with them that as Westerners, their family wasn't with them. And conversely, I would say that an Easterner would read that text and assume their family was with them. And the question is, is which one is right? And I don't know that either one is right because we can't prove it based on the text of Scripture, but based on the, their setting, sociologically, we would probably say that they were. there's no way on earth they were alone, um, which is really interesting and changes kind of every, every Western church's nativity scene. You have Mary and Joseph and a whole bunch of people versus just Mary and Joseph at the manger. It's, that's kind of an interesting thing to, to really ponder. Um, another thing we see that lies just below the surface is this idea of honor and shame. And again, this is really bound in the individual collective thing of, of where is honor and shame bound and where, who defines those things and who makes you feel those things as an individualistic society, honor and shame are really um, bound in yourself, right? Like I, I screw up. I feel guilty. I feel shame because I know I made a mistake. Um, in collective societies, your family will make sure you feel shame. Yeah. And it, it's, and so we see it play out in scripture a couple different ways, but there are really some, um, distinctions here as far as, uh, honor and shame go. And we look in second Samuel too. We look at this, this idea of, of David and Uriah, right? Oh, poor Uriah. Poor, yeah. Poor Uriah. That was not sarcastic, by the way. No. No, it was not. And so it's it's just this interesting idea, though, that um, 
uh, and I, I'm going to read kind of the, what they said. So obviously if you, you all probably know the story pretty well, right? David sees Bathsheba and he falls in love or whatever you want to call it. Probably falls in lust. And then he, her husband, he finds out her husband's in the army and then he has him killed in one way or another. Um, and then, you know, he gets caught by somebody, this prophet with a great name, great name, great name. That's called a bias there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that is that is a bias. Um, I am, I do bear his name, sort of. Um, no, the prophet Nathan, sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't resist that. I, I enjoy that. Um, but I also feel that I, I would not live up to that standard either. So there's that for you. Um, but basically what it says of David is, the texts, they say, the texts give no indication that David felt any inner remorse. We misread when we think David had a guilty conscience and David's honor is restored. Beth me, Bathsheba moves in, so the baby is David's. Bathsheba probably got what she wanted. Only Uriah suffered, and David likely considered it Uriah's fault. Uriah had failed to play along. He had shamed David, and David retaliated. Probably in David's mind, he had made Uriah a fair offer, we might say. David summarized the episode in this way in a message sent to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. And that's um, from 2 Samuel eleven twenty-five. And really what they're getting at here is I'm just trying to summarize the bulk of this text is that we, we assume that as Westerners, I think, and again, I assume this when I read this the first time, is that David had this affair with Bathsheba and we think that Uriah had no idea. He's just this dumb, dumb guy that his wife's sleeping with the king and he's none the wiser. I, I don't know how that works. It's even, I mean, I, I don't know why we assume that. Maybe because we think they're so technologically not advanced. Like nowadays, there's no way they would, no one would know. Paparazzi and all that. But it would, would have been the same, right? David saw her bathing from her thing. First of all, do you think David was the only one who saw her bathing? Second, do you think she didn't know David was watching? There's there's that implication too a little bit. And then thirdly, like even the text, they kind of allude to the fact that Uriah did know and David probably tried to buy him off. And he's like, no, no, no. And then David had him killed. And which is even more damning than what David already did in having oh, yeah. him killed just for being dumb. Um, but even still, David doesn't feel any shame or remorse until Nathan straight pulls it out of him. And then... Nathan's the one who kind of invokes that shame because he upholds, he, he reveals that standard of the Lord. He invokes what honor should look like. And that's, it comes from outside of David. David would have, had Nathan not said anything, there is a good likelihood that David would have never repented and it would have just been another Saul. Yeah. Um, which would have been a sad story. No, but. it would have been Re- really quick on that note too, just to emphasize further your point. What was David at that point? Yeah, he was the king, but when it came in terms of the army, what was he? Not a commander. Yeah, he was the he was the sole he was the like it, we we would understand it like a five star general, right? He was the cheese, right? The commander in chief. He so add in that component too, that not only did he try to buy him off, but then he he as the commander sends him to his death intentionally. Like, that's his plan. And his plan is ah, you know, some some die, some live. Think about how that the implications of that. How, and again, I have a deep admiration for the, you know the example of Dave, King David. There's a reason that God selected him, but that's another little wrinkle to add in there. 
Yep. And then finally, this last idea that we see just below the surface is this idea of, of time and, and interpreting the Bible. And when I was growing up, I thought the Bible, just all the books of the Bible were in chronological order. If only. If only it were that easy. But even still, even in specific texts, right? So there's this idea of, so there's two Greek words for that. There's chronos, which is chronological time. And then there's, it's called kairos. And what it is, is time when um, the book, the text defines this, and I'll just quote it. It says, the ancients used kairos to refer to the more qualitative aspect of time when something special happened. So you'd think about seasons or you would think about even like less vague is this idea of if you look at the Gospels and the way the Gospels are arranged, and that's where people get all bent out of shape on on chronology is Matthew, Mark, even Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic Gospels, which kind of generally follow the chronological flow of Jesus' life. Parables are kind of somewhat all over the place, and miracles are somewhat all over the place. And so they really seem to be grouped more by subject matter, right? And this maybe this Kairos idea that things are lumped together that way for more of an impact that may not have necessarily happened chronologically. Now, some things we, we, we tend to assume are and aren't chronologically. And what this adds or takes away from the text are this this some of the stuff is a little minutia right so like especially if we talk about and like time jumping too right we'll jump from like and like one verse will jump like weeks or years and as english readers as western readers we don't even notice which is fascinating because you would think that it would be you know like spelled out more if that makes sense like we feel like if we if the aspects of time were important the text would say it but it's not as important and there's some things that are understood and even like you look at again we go back to the story of jesus when he was born uh we go from uh his birth in matthew and then we have the the herod called the magi after they found out when the star had appeared and when is so they wanted to know when the star appeared exactly but like does the text really say the distance in time between when he was born and the magi we don't really know right there's some schools of thought that think he was one or two or three years old he was a toddler by the time the magi showed up based on like star charts and and some other things but the text is not abundantly clear on this issue and so we just need to be careful with reading time in there if that makes sense yeah i mean i would say with with certainty if that makes sense like you can it's okay to approach it with this is how i'm viewing it based on these things but bear in mind since the scripture is not clear it's not something that we can stand on firmly if that makes sense i don't know what your thoughts are to that commentary but i would agree um and Two, even when the the word time is used, we just need to look at again what's what's the the, the mitigating factor there is context. Absolutely. So Matthew thirteen thirteen, Jesus speaks of the time of the harvest, 
Well, what is the time of the harvest? Is it a general idea of a season of sorts or is it a specific? Yeah, is it a specific (laughs) date on a calendar, right? The time of the end is the time of the end come either. No, I would I would argue that that's, again, a season that we just have not not reached yet. And so how do you tell the difference? And I think as English readers who I mean, if you know Greek, you could literally go into the text and find Kronos or Kairos and you can really tell is it a Kairos like season of time or a important like event based um, passage of time or is it a specific chronological passage of time but for those who are English readers who don't know Greek or don't want to know Greek which is fair you can really look at the context and kind of sometimes be able to mitigate the context based on what kind of time are they talking about and so just it's just one of those things again Time can be understood as both. And Westerners, we typically tend to see time always chronologically unless, let me use a not word here and call it kairosologically, which is not a word. Um, but It but, is now. <laughs> it is now. But, the Eastern, but in Eastern, it's the flip, right? They, they tend to see time more from of, of event-based time passage versus chronologically like dates on a calendar. Even I think I, heard, I saw something one time where they were talking about the dates – like the 900 years plus that like Adam lived and Seth lived and that those were just kind of round numbers that they used because they didn't, they didn't count 900 years or 950 years. Like it was probably around that, but it'd be like me saying, Oh, you, my, my grandfather lived to be a hundred. Well, he lived to be 93, but close enough. Right. Because it's to them, you know, that's semantics 93, a hundred. What's the difference? He lived to be old. Yeah. He was very old. Um, no, I think that's a phenomenal accentuating point that you hit on was the just the differences. Even even historians look at it. Not that that matters to the context of Scripture because it's ultimately authoritative, authoritative, but even they will highlight that. If you look at an Eastern historian and a Western historian, the way they even view time is that way. So, so we're going to kind of get into, we're going to kind of try and wrap this up here. We're going to go a little bit longer than our normal hour if you're, Still listening to us, um, but we do want to get through some of this. It's just this text is is really good and really it's a little bit long, but I think it's worth the extra fifteen minutes as we destroy our podcast. I just studio. completely bumped the table. That was my fault, guys. It's okay. So, ah, yes, back to my outline, the eloquent speaking. No, I'm just kidding. So, in section three, uh, it covers deep below the surface. Um, and this is stuff, uh, I like how they put it, um, this section and chapters are the cultural differences that are the least obvious. However, here's their caveat, which I completely agree with, but are often the most crucial for our interpretation. <clears throat> so chapter seven covers rules and relationships. And there's a reason they group them together, right? How rules affect relationships is what they get at. Um, and chapter eight is getting right and wrong. So it's looking at ver- like the emphasis on virtue and vices and which ones are emphasized, which ones, which ones aren't. Um, sometimes why there are certain vices that are emphasized specifically in the West, hint, hint, and not the virtues as much. And then uh, chapter nine is finding the center of God's will. Like, is it all about you? Is it about God? Um, so very interesting. And something I want to add, and maybe this kind of goes back maybe to the individualist collective, but also kind of the the idea of uh, finding, it's all about me, finding the center, is 
this idea of the difference between me and church. I I often hear like, and I would somebody close to me said that, that you go to church to get fed, and that's true in some sense, but that's very individualistic. Like, I don't go. To, I shouldn't. You shouldn't come to church just to get fed. It shouldn't be just about you, right? And obviously, we talk about worship and defining worship. It's it's a twenty four seven thing, but we come together in collective worship. It should be what can I like your the local church body and the church universal is is a family, right? You are the family of God. You are sons and daughters of Christ. So, what can you bring to Him? What can you bring to the Father? What can you bring? to the son, to the spirit, what can you bring to each other? How can you feed somebody else? Right? It should be less about, and you're going to get fed. Like you, you go to church, you go to a good church, you're going to get fed. You're going to get expository preaching. You're going to get teaching. You're going to get discipline. You're going to get fellowship. You're going to get a whole slew of great things. Which you should. And being fed is good. But if you're coming just to get fed, you're in it for the wrong, I think you're in it for the wrong reasons a little bit. And God, again, God can use that, but at the same time, you maybe want to check yourself at the door a little bit. That if you're coming to receive from God, and how can God pour into me? How can you honor God and offer God thanksgiving and worship God and be obedient to God? Because He, it, in the grand scheme of things, He owes you nothing, and He has graciously given you salvation and graciously shown you mercy. And you should be. I, I, my response is always. I love to, to respond to that this way is if our response to our salvation is anything less than us basically just falling on our face and prostrating ourselves before before God Almighty, whether in word or deed or actual like action of actually actually prostrating yourself, um, literally, I guess, or figuratively, then then your actions are wrong. And that's that's hard to look in the mirror and say, is this action honoring God or is this action really showing that I'm thankful for my salvation. That's, that's a hard perspective to take, but ultimately that's, that's what it's about. And thankfully there's this, um, this collective of the church that he's graciously given us that even though we agree, disagree on some secondary things that ultimately we all grow up together. The body of Christ functions as one cohesive unit that builds one another up. And so going back to the purpose of our podcast, it's really where we're at is we don't want to just build up our local body. We want to build up the church universal. Anyone who's listening can hopefully be in some way built up by this. Very well said, and I couldn't agree more. Um, And really quick on that point, that I think that view is rather myopic, that view of I come to get fed. Um, Yeah, you should. Like That should be something you look for. If you're not being fed properly from the pulpit, that's a huge red flag. But like, as, as, as Brother Nate pointed out very, very well, it's much, much, much more than that. It's a both and. It's not only about what you receive, and your focus should not be solely on you. Now, you can notice those patterns without it being solely about you. I think that's phenomenal. And it ties in very well. I mean, R.C. Sproul has a really good comment on this. That I'm not sure when he said it or how he said it, but it ties in directly to actually chapter 7, um, but also to the context of the conversation at large. And his, his, content, his, his um, statement goes like this. It goes, whenever I feel I'm unjustly hated, I try to remember, or I'm not trying to, I remember, or sorry, let me, let me start over. When I'm unjustly hate, when I feel as though I'm unjustly hated, I remember, I try to remember that I'm unjustly loved. Um, and he's referencing God, right? So he's referencing 
that, yeah, while a person might be unjustly upset with me um, and, and attacking my character unjustly and all of those things, ultimately God loves me in a fashion that is completely outside of my own merit. I am undeserving of. And I think that's a phenomenal couching and framing of, of that overall conversation. Now, in chapter seven, they do a phenomenal job here of outlining rules and how they define relationships. Um, and they, they have this quote here, Westerners misread biblical texts when we assume that rules, the rules that we see specifically, are the total extent of the relationship. Um, now, and they do a great job, and I, I find this very fascinating. Um, they, they outline in depth, more and more in depth, and elaborate on the idea of first century, the, the patron-client relationship in first century Rome and what that meant. Now, in, in, in summary, because they, really, they go really in depth on it. In summary, um, the, patron, the, patron, the patron did favors. Like the patron, think of like, I mean, many of the Americans probably, are, if they haven't seen this movie, are aware of it. The Godfather, right? The Mafia. They, they, he does favors for businesses and now they owe him. Those businesses now owe him their loyalty or that individual owes him their loyalty. That's exactly how the patron client relationship operated. Um, the patron, the patron would do favors for his clients who then fell under his circle of influence and protection. If, again, if that sounds like the mafia, that's very similar to how the mafia would operate. Um, Paul in Philippians four ties their gift that they gave him to the loyalty and protection of God, not to himself. Um, this also explains and sheds more light on Paul's interpretation of gifts as far as like monetary giving throughout his epistles. And it makes a lot more sense. It helps to shed a, a, a other perspective that as Westerners we lack. Um, and I think they do a very good job in text of doing that. For, and further, they elaborate too. So relationships must follow the rules. That's how, and I think that's largely correct, a correct assessment of how we view relationships in the West. Um, Westerners are, are committed to rules, um, and it makes it hard for us to imagine a valid um, rule to which there are maybe valid exceptions, which Scripture is loaded with. Scripture is loaded with examples of valid rules, but that also accompany valid exceptions. So when relationships are the norming factor, this is how they tie it into the Eastern context, right? Helping us understand and I think largely God's relationship with his people um, is emphasized heavily. When that's the norming factor, we should expect exceptions. Um, and we see, and they, they, and that under that heading, they, they utilize and point out the example of how Paul had Timothy circumcised, even though Paul spends all his time teaching on why you shouldn't be circumcising people anymore. Like that's not a requirement of the law. The law has been fulfilled. We're under grace, not the law. So why would, why would Paul have Timothy do that? Um, and they, they, in light of that, they kind of assess this. I think this is really well, well put. The Christian life should be viewed more as a journey along a road, not as much as a courtroom, a contract in a courtroom. Um, and, and specifically in the context of that dichotomy of, well, why is Paul having Timothy circumcised when he's telling Timothy as a young pastor? And not only that, pretty much any church that has a problem, he's reemphasizing this idea of not having circumcision um, and not being under, not falling under the the, the expectations of the law because that's not no longer applicable. Um, a lot of that has to do with not being a stumbling block to the Jews, to the Jewish people in the area of Ephesus, I believe it might have been the specific context off the top of my head. I'm having a hard time remembering. Um, but Timothy preaching there and understanding that there are Jewish converts and potentially more Jewish converts and not to be a stumbling block for them intentionally. Um, 
And we, as we roll on, this ties in, and I, I think, in my, in my view, the last three chapters are the best strung together. I mean, they're all good, but don't get me wrong, but they, they string it, they flow very, very well, because then it rolls right into vice, virtues and vices. And it, very similarly, like how, our rela- how the West's relationships are often defined based upon rules. Um, similarly, in the West, we emphasize the vices over the virtues, where in the Eastern co- context, they would spend more time talking about the virtues. <clears throat> um, and that, that's very fascinating. They use Colossians 3 as a, a proof text and an example of that. Um, and then flowing from there, both of those, like rules and relationships and how to properly, that proper tension between vices and virtues and how we come to them, are tied into finding the center of God's will. More, is it collective, individualistic? Um, and they do a good job of outlining that and hitting the norms of it. Again, is it more, I come to church to get fed? i.e. I receive from God, or is should our attitude be more of a continual heart of worship? Um, I hope I summarized quickly enough. I know we're kind of up against it. Nope, absolutely. I think we could like, we could spend a ton of time in all of these all of these chapters. That's why we suggest you just read this for yourself. Uh, there's some interesting things in here that I think are worth taking away. But again, just be wary of digging too deep. And so uh, I'm going to read you kind of how they open their conclusion because it's kind of um, a bit ironic. And I think just a a good reminder that um, even when reading this book, we're being a little Western. Um, These these writers are Western, uh, even though I do have some other backgrounds. And so there's some – there's – there's three, they say three easy steps, but I have five here. So we'll give you five. I think that, and we just need to be um, cognizant of, but before I do that, I want to read this, this uh, conclusion, the intro to the conclusion, uh, word for word. Uh, it says, and I quote, as we were putting the final touches on this book, I, Brandon, spoke with my good friend, Phoebe, about, about it. Phoebe is Syrian and speaks Arabic as a first language. She and her husband, a Canadian, are high school sweethearts who met at a boarding school in Germany before moving to Europe. Before moving to Europe, her husband grew up in Ecuador. After they married, they spent time as missionaries in Africa. Now they live in the Chicago suburbs. They are perhaps the most, quote, international couple I know. Phoebe was intrigued by the project. She was glad to hear Westerners talk about ways our cultural location affects our interpretation of Scripture. I told her we were struggling to make the book practical, to offer concrete suggestions for how our readers could apply the information in these chapters to their own study of Scripture. She replied, quote, That's sort of a Western thing to want, isn't it? She asked with a smile. Three easy steps for identifying our cultural presuppositions? She's right, of course. Westerners like systems, processes, and checklists. It's easy for us to believe that if we just work the right steps in the right order, we were guaranteed to achieve the right outcome. That's why so much litter on biblical interpretation focuses on methodology. Many of us believe that if we simply identify the right process for reading the Bible, do the right steps in the right order, we'll eliminate opportunity for misinterpretation. Unfortunately, methodologies are products of culture, and as we've argued throughout this book, our cultural values and assumptions are very often the problem. So if you hope in the concluding chapter, 
If you hope this concluding chapter will include three easy steps for becoming more culturally sensitive reader of scripture, you're going to be disappointed. There are no shortcuts in the process of removing cultural blinders. If you are 30 years old in Western, then you've been developing Western habits of thinking and reading for 30 years. It's unreasonable to expect to reverse those habits by reading a single book or bearing a few principles in mind. I feel very attacked there. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) We're not trying to teach you a new methodology. We're trying to help you become a certain kind of reader. The kind of reader who is increasingly aware of his or her cultural assumptions. And that takes time, self-reflection, and hard work. We've convinced, we're convinced the reward is worth the hard work. So instead of a checklist, we want to offer you some advice. I think that's, that's Christianity, honestly, in a nutshell. We look for, or I mean, Western civilization too, but especially American Christians, we look for how can I be holy fast? Give me the, the quick fix to being holy, right? And there's, there is no quick fix to being holy. You're not going to be holy this side of eternity. So, I mean, you better start now, but it, it's not going to be an easy road. It's not going to be, there is no cookie cutter approach to, to your experience in Christianity. I mean, the Bible is the mold, but each person goes through their own experiences and goes through and faces their own biases, right? You were born into a certain family with a certain set of parents, with a certain set of values. You were raised a certain way. Um, I would say at, at our age, Andrew and I, that we're kind of in this weird uh, generation where Andrew and I feel very, we were raised in like a very old school with an old school sort of mentality about hard work and about things like that, which again are Western, but also very old school where a lot of the generation that would be considered in our generation, um, maybe a little bit younger, maybe about the same age, don't value hard work, don't value um, some of the morals that we possess. And so it's just interesting to see that dichotomy, even in, even in America, that mm-hmm. our age group is, there's such this dichotomy and maybe part of that's because we were raised in Christian homes, but I don't, even some of my friends who were raised in Christian homes that are not Christians now, um, some that are, uh, have very different ideas about certain things. So it's just something to continue to, we have to continue to grow and be aware of. And so, I'm going to give you these five, and we're going to go through them a little quickly, but just just keep these in mind and remember that, that no one is perfect and there is no cookie-cutter approach. And when it comes to Scripture, like mystery and ambiguity is okay because ultimately it just it should. That, that fact alone should drive you to the one who, though he won't necessarily give you the answer to the mystery and ambiguity, is the one who's going to tell you it's going to be okay. And when you get to heaven, he'll, he'll explain it all anyway. So the first one is embrace complexity, right? There are, there are tricky biblical passages. They exist. There are difficult passages that we just, for the most part, cannot seem to grasp or cannot see to agree on. And so the question is, is, is it simple enough to just put, a co- again, a cookie cutter on this and just say, oh, well, that's a cultural thing. So we don't have to, this is culturally, a culturally bound principle. So we don't have to apply it. Or is it not culturally bound and it's universal? And there's debate there, right? But it's, it's important to remember that we just listed a, a, a handful of different cultural issues. There are probably far too many to list. And so if you think just by applying and appealing to one cultural difference between Eastern and Western in your thinking, 
that that's going to answer all your problems biblically, then you're wrong, right? It's far more complex than that. And even one passage of scripture may have three or four or five or 10 different things that you have to deal with culturally that you may not even know about. And so just em- embrace that complexity, know that it's there. You may not have all the answers, but just be open to what scripture says. Because again, it says what it says. And it says it for a reason. It is the inspired word of God. So the second one is be aware of overcorrection. And this is um, I kind of ironic for this text because I think they do this a little bit in their in their own text. Mm-hmm. But I would also say that it's it's good to be aware of is uh, overcorrection is really like now we're just applying all these different things and we're kind of reading our own bias into the text. Uh, for those of you who have concern with big words, the, the term is eisegesis versus what is exegesis, where exegesis would be um, understanding and interpreting the meaning of the text from the text. Eisegesis would be reading your own understanding of whatever you think the text says into the text. So the text basically just says what you want it to say. Um, and as Westerners, we're really good at that. Um, and, and one thing they say, and I'm going to quote this too, is it says, um, as Westerners, we have a tendency to overcorrect. We're an all or nothing sort of people. For this reason, once we've identified an interpretation, application, or doctrine as quote unquote cultural, it's tempting to abandon it altogether. If, for example, you once had a tendency to assume that to assume that every promise in the Bible applies to you directly, you might be tempted to overcorrect and then assume that none of the promises in the Bible apply to you directly. So again, it's not an all or nothing. It's not an either or. That's kind of an extreme example, right? But do we want to overcorrect? Do we want to read things into the text or do we want to let the text just speak for itself? Let the text speak for itself. The next one is be teachable, right? None of us, this side of eternity, I believe, are fully going to understand all the mysteries of God and plumb the depths of God because we're not God. So, but God has given people different gifts, right? There are Greek scholars out there, and some of whom I am very much admire, that will f- be far more fluent in Greek than I ever will. And I, I humbly submit to them as experts, and I would say that I'm teachable in that aspect. But even, but even still, just simply being open to what the text says, be teachable from the text, be teachable from your pastors, from teachers, from people you respect. And we'll probably cover some ways to identify good teachers too, but be teachable, be open to that. Be open to, and I guess this ties in the next one, embrace error, be open to being wrong. I can't tell you how many times I've been wrong. It's okay to be wrong, right? It's not ideal, right? But at the end of the day, it's going to happen. We're sinful. We're fallible. We're humans. So you're going to make errors. You're going to misinterpret scripture. But that's why there's scripture says iron sharpens iron, right? That's why you're, if you're teachable, you know, and you realize, hey, I'm wrong, own it. Then be teachable and, and grow from it. Because that's that's the only way things are. Otherwise, you're just going to get so entrenched in your beliefs that your understanding of Scripture will probably become jaded and clouded and at some point down the line probably incorrect. So that's just embrace the idea that you are some at some point going to be wrong. 
it's it's gonna happen. I'm also gonna kind of showcase that I was probably wrong at some point today, so we can deal with that however we want to deal with that. And then the last is read together. I think that is a big a big thing that we don't do a lot of is we don't read together. We love to talk about, especially in Western civilization, our ideas of personal quiet time, a personal scripture reading, a personal prayer. And I think those are important. I absolutely do. If you're not spending time daily praying, reading scripture, maintaining an attitude of prayer, start. It is, it is beneficial, to say the least. But if you're doing that, and you're not going to church, and you're not fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you're missing out. And then again, you you might be unknowingly entrenching yourself in things that are wrong, and that's that's a scary thing. I was conversing with one of our pastors, and he he said basically, there's this teacher who's like, and some Western teachers are like this where we got to find the new thing, the hot new thing. How can we find some new nuance in scripture? Like, we're two thousand years removed from the close of the canon of scripture. If you're finding something new, it's probably not right, right? So if you're on your own and you're like, oh, I got to find this new thing, or oh, I'm flipping through my Bible and let me just open it to whatever God has for me. Like, let's be careful with that, right? But again, that's the benefit of reading together. And hey, you could all be wrong. That's also possible too. So I think that's important to um, run yourself in circles that even your Bible studies are led by somebody who has some training, some education. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that a whole bunch of parishioners can't just get together and read the Bible. Absolutely. Amen. Do it. But just be wary, right? Because when you start talking, reading scripture is one thing, but when you start talking your opinions, then we need to be careful because that's where error can come from. It may not. You might be right, and that's okay, right? But continuing to read the word of God, let the word of God speak, not you. It's not the gospel of whatever you insert your name here. It's it's God's word. Uh, I actually am just finishing up a study uh, that I'm teaching on Amos, and it, it seems kind of applicable here that Amos in chapter seven is confronted by Amaziah, the prophet of of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's a, he's a priest, but he's he's fa- he's a false priest, right? He's the priest of the kingdom. He's not a priest of God, and so the he tells Amos to go away. He says you, you your words are too harsh. You're you're prophesying against the king. You need to go away. And Amos is like, look, man, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing very loosely here, but I'm trying to give you some jargon. He's like, look, man, this ain't me. I was, I was out here minding my own business, tending my sheep, and God said, hey, you need to go prophesy to Israel. And Amos is like, okay, I'm going to be obedient to God and go speak his word. And so Amos, Amos is not the one to blame. It's, it's God's word. He's just letting God's word speak, right? Amos is just the mouthpiece, and that's really in everything we do, that, that God's word should be the center, right? God is the center. His word is the center. And that's where we should live, right? If we're taking the center away from Bible studies like that, then then we have problems. But if we continue to let the text speak, then then it it's beneficial for everybody. And again, that's where if we look at this text as a whole, um, as far as a misreading scripture with Western eyes, again, not perfect, not without error, overall a good book, 
I, I would I would recommend it. But it stands under the authority of Scripture. It should help the interpretation of Scripture, but it should not ste- overstep Scripture, right? And, and so that's where you just you need to be careful with resources like this. That it's good, but we don't need to overemphasize it above Scripture, right? I don't need to run every single passage of Scripture through this book and see how it fits. I should really run this book through Scripture and see how well they've applied it to Scripture. And and Andrew and I have actually spent some time doing that together, and that's why you've heard some some nuances to things that we don't wholly agree with. And if we ever get a chance, we'd probably talk about some more, and that's okay. Uh, but we also want you to find that for yourself too. We don't want to just give you, hey, this book is all this error, and this book is all well, this is error, this is right. At, at a certain point, it's beneficial as the reader for you to do these things yourself because that's at least for me, and maybe that's Western thinking. That's that's how I learn. Is you could tell me to your blue in the face that, that this is error, but unless I've really discovered that for myself and really plumbed the depths of Scripture against this text, then I wouldn't know. If I may, really quick, just really quick, two points. Um, <laughs> well, one, and this is kind of tying, brother, what you're talking about. When it, whenever it comes, and this is something I realized in one of my classes a few semesters ago, covering this very topic, cultural contexts and all this. And it, it breathed a lot of extra life, excuse me, into this book whenever you approached it. Try to avoid the 180 syndrome is what I'll call it. Meaning you pick this up, kind of what we talked about in the beginning. You pick up this book, and again, it does a good job of highlighting cultural differences, which are, which are important to be aware of, and they can add perspective and insight. Um, but the internal perspective, I would argue, the best way to understand it in a picture, if you will, is comprised of multiple perspectives. Um, ultimately, it's how God tells us to see things, ultimately. But what I would say is don't throw away, like as Nathan was pointing out, or I should say Nate, I know he doesn't like Nathan, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> but um, don't throw away all of the individual view, like the individual responsibility of of being active and seeking and de- sweeping the plums of Scripture to understand the, the the depths as much as we can of what God has given us. There's nothing wrong with that, um, but there is a problem when we want to exclude how our actions affect other people, or exclude the idea that it's not really about us getting something right. Think of you know, for God has a plan to prosper you. Right. Well, we don't want to misapply that, right? When God's talking about a plan to prosper something or someone or a group, specifically in the Old Testament, we want to make sure and run it through that it's not talking specifically of Israel, um, just for an example. So again, just avoiding that 180 syndrome of picking up a book like this. And the other book I read in my class to this note did something similar. Where one of the authors talked about co-inhabiting, which for those of you who don't know, is two families living or three families living under one roof. And now it's very common in other cultures in the East, kind of, again, that group mentality. The author went as far as to do the, him and his wife did this very thing. And then they also run their plans through this other group. He, now he doesn't, he doesn't recommend that. He doesn't say you have to do it. I would just say guard against doing the 180 where you flip it. Um, and then lastly, lastly, the second point, which just ties directly in when it comes to like to, to Nate's point about, um, seeking out those who are qualified to teach in addition to your own group studies. Um, the, when you amass thinkers, right, for example, I'll use an example. Um, you got someone like 
Dr. Leighton Flowers and maybe Dr. John MacArthur, who at oftentimes view things when it comes to salvation and, and, and that from different ends. It's important to hear from both of them um, and not just – now, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying who I agree with, who I don't agree with. I'm just using them as examples, uh, those who are familiar with them. If not, kind of give them a view. They're both – in their own way, valuable, but they, they present two different sides of a story uh, of views that can be helpful to see both sides first. And I, with that, I close my time. Absolutely. Is this a debate now? Um, <laughs> I was gonna say I yield my time. I'm thinking more of a courtroom, but nonetheless, <laughs> either way, um, I would say too, and, and this is maybe where I thought you were going to go with this 180, is that this book is helpful. This book should not be life changing. That's any, any, good any, any really book like, I've read some good books, man. I've read, and we'll hopefully we'll get through some of them. I've read some really good books, and they're really helpful. <laughs> but there's one book that should change your life, one. Amen. And that's that is the Bible. Amen. And, oh, that's a very good way to put it. And these, all these other books, should point you back there. That's really what they should do. If they're not pointing you back there, then maybe they aren't a good resource. This book, at least, even if it, it falls in certain places, points you back to Scripture. It uses Scripture references. It keeps you grounded in Scripture, and that's where you need to stay. That's absolutely the winner. So we've spent a ton of time, too much time talking about this book. We're way over, way over our normal hour show. We're going to, we're going to work on that um, for our next book review. We're not going to go over, we're going to try and not go over an hour for you. I know that that takes up your time. We very much appreciate it. If you're still listening, if you've already tuned us out by now, then I, then I deeply apologize and I hope you come back. So I'm going to give you our verse one more time. Uh, We're going to close in prayer and then we'll see you next week. So again, that verse of the day, the focus verse that we're going to do this week, and maybe you want to read this every day, is 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, do, not, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And I'm just, I encourage you again, just to be, a, when you handle the word, just be a worker. Don't just read it to read it. Don't just read it for its literary, just embrace it let the spirit work in you be prayerful and with that let's pray father thank you for our time together this week today that we can discuss these books that you've allowed to be written in your common grace lord thank you for giving men these gifts that they can continue to build and edify your church lord continue to work in in those listening and and around the kingdom today those listening and those not that you continue to just allow them to help them grow in the likeness of Christ, but also in their own way in which they can use the gifts that you've given them to help build themselves and to help build the kingdom, to build your kingdom for your glory. Father, we know that in all things, this all comes from you. This all stems from you. And we are so thankful for this opportunity. We are so thankful for your word. And we ask that you continue to just grow each and every one, one of us, Lord. And those who Maybe you haven't heard, Lord God, continue to work on the hearts of those who don't believe. Lord, if they, if they stumble upon, upon this cr- podcast, Lord, or whatever whatever it might be, or maybe somebody points it here, Lord, that they, they would be touched by hearing not my words and not Andrew's words, but, Lord, from you, that you would touch them, Lord. And, and all these things we pray in your mighty, your holy, your saving, your loving name, we pray. Amen. Amen. So thank you for tuning again. Um, for this extended show on misreading scripture through Western eyes. Uh, We'll be back next week to go into a few more attributes of scripture. And then I think after that, we're going to get into kind of the uh, walk through what the 
beginnings or the outlines of a Christian journey looks like and continue to dive into all the ways that we can use scripture to enhance and to safeguard our walks. So until next week, we'll see ya.